Well, good morning, church. If you were with us last Sunday on Easter, um, and so we're going to continue in that vein. We want to share stories uh, both from the scriptures, but also uh, from our own lives, just about what Jesus has done. And in fact, let me uh, just throw out a reminder uh, for the next couple of weeks before the service at 915, uh, we're actually hosting a class where different couples are sharing uh, their their testify moments and introduce you to my friend Lee. And uh, he's going to share a, a little bit before we, we move towards um, the teaching. So, Lee, uh, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Good morning. Uh, my name is Lee Morrison. Uh, born here in the Dallas area. Grew up down in Austin. My wife, Dara Lee, for about 11 years. Our son, SJ, is eight. Our daughter, Anna, just turned nine, just turned seven. Sorry, got those backwards. SJ's about to turn nine. Uh, she just turned seven, uh, and I retired from the Marine Corps about three years ago. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, clap for that. Yeah. Uh, I just want to be clear the applause is for the Marine Corps and not for AM. I just want to. Um, so I, I know we don't uh, have time for the entire Lee story, uh, but if you could um, uh, just share with us, if, if you want to pick one thing um, that has shown you the love of Jesus and testify to that, why don't you share something with us from your life? Looking back. I can see countless ways that God has blessed me and shown me his goodness and his love and kindness, usually despite my choices and despite my best effort to go the other way. Uh, but the, the thing that kind of comes to mind most recently uh, or recently is how we ended up here in Arlington. Uh, you know, we always said after we got married, hey, we'll stick it out for 20, we'll get the retirement, and then we'll settle down to give some stability to the family. Uh, but... As it goes, got closer to that 20-year mark, uh, I kind of changed my mind. I was like, I'm comfortable here. This is all I've ever done my entire adult life, so why, why don't we just kind of hang out and stick this out a little bit longer and see what, what's next. Uh, as God would have it, though, uh, came up time for promotion. I was not selected for promotion, so that kind of closed that door. At the time, that was, that was hard to see these people that I've been working alongside of who you know, I mean, I'm a good guy. I thought I worked pretty hard. I thought I'd, I did everything they wanted me to do. Uh, and I thought I worked harder than some, some of these other people that were getting promoted. So that was a really hard time. Yeah. Uh, but looking back, now that we're here, uh, you know, we've been here about a year and a half. This is normally the time we start to say goodbye, start to think about where we're going next. But the, the fact that we're planted here and able to continue here, it's clear to see that God closed that door. He opened so many others. Uh, and of those doors, we ended up here because we believed and, you know, followed where God wanted us to be. If I had taken any of those other paths, if I was still on active duty, if I would have taken any one of several other job opportunities over the last year and a half during the pandemic, our lives would have been significantly more challenging uh, just due to circumstances. But as it was, he put us here. And uh, we were able to be blessed as a family, and we were also able to bless other people. So That's God awesome. showed us. He gave me what we needed, not what I wanted. Awesome. That's a, that's a good testify moment right there. Um, so, uh, Lee, if you were going to give one piece, piece of advice uh, for people trying to follow Jesus uh, during uncertain circumstances, what piece of advice would you give? I, I guess just trust and seek. If God's plan for your life and my life, I know, has been so much bigger than I could have imagined. If you would have told me when I dropped out of, failed out of college the first time, I'd end up here right now with this awesome family, a good job, and just as blessed as I am, 
I would have, you know, not believed you. But just if you let God do his work, he'll do amazing things for you. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And now we're going to turn it over to our time of teaching. Thank you, Lee. Well, I will, uh, I will say kind of uh, in, my own, in my own way, I have just such a huge amount of respect for our military men and women and who, who give their lives in sacrifice and sacrifice in untold ways. In Vermont, I actually had the privilege of being a, a chaplain, a civilian chaplain for the Vermont National Guard. And so what they do is they utilized us as chaplains for numerous reasons, not the least of which is that some of the men and women coming back had really been struggling with reintegration. And to, to see a, a chaplain in the military meant that it, it might go on your record. And so being able to see a civilian chaplain and have some confidentiality and just talk about some things. I remember journeying with so many uh, men and women who had, had seen untold uh, challenges and atrocities in the context of their life. Been asked to do things that were just impossible for, for many people to understand and even hear about. And so the, the post-trauma of those things was so significant. And yet... The, the word and, and the Holy Spirit's work along that journey to bring freedom and liberty was, was amazing to me. So I'm, I'm a sucker for those, um, those welcome home stories by our military men and women. You know, like you go on YouTube and this, this dad's coming home and his kids are at a basketball game and they have no idea he's showing up or they're at, at kindergarten class and the, the mom comes in. And, and it's amazing to me because there's just this unbelievable sense of relief so here's the story for me. I remember somebody in our church in Vermont um, was going on a second deployment to Afghanistan. Kids were fairly young, uh, 10, 12-ish, uh, young, young boys and, and the wife. And, and they had said goodbye once before. The deployment was about a year. And he had come back and he had been home for about two and a half years, but then got called up again to, to go over uh, again. And, and there was so many questions. And I remember sitting at the, the Vermont National Guard post where they were, the, the buses were literally pulling away as these, this family was just in shambles. And it's not because they didn't trust uh, their husband's or dad's training, nor was it that they were angry that they thought that they were doing something that the government was asking them to do that they shouldn't do. They were in support of, of their military loved one. But it was just this huge sense of uncertainty. Would we see him again? And that, that, that really was the burden that they carried. And they carried that for a year. right? But then when this man came home, right, that, that weight, that relief, it, it, it's indescribable of what it's like to just have this sense of the very yearnings that you long for, the very desires that you have, are met and the emotions that are expressed are tremendous. I remember being able to walk through that with this family and just thought, man, it's, it's amazing to see through really the variety of the ups and downs that it took place in, in, in so many military families' lives that, that there's just this, this tangibleness to their faith. And, and what I mean by that is that there was some levels of fragility and uncertainty God, they've done their part. Why allow them to keep doing it again, <laughs> right? Like we've done our piece. It's someone else's turn. And yet there was this sense of, of pride and privilege, but also loss and fear. Those were emotions that were 
were, all of us have felt, but, but they, were, they were tangible. Like you could hold on to them. This morning, we're going to enter into a very similar story that even Lee had shared and, and even the sense of what God has been doing and continues to do through the lenses of, of what the Bible calls a Roman centurion. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. Now, there's two pockets of the scriptures that, that allow us to that share this story. And they, they each have a, a very unique vantage point. So Matthew 8 verses 5 through 13 is one part. And, and Luke chapter 7 verses 1 through 10. I, I want to focus on the Luke one, although I'll refer to the Matthew one because there's different uh, aspects of each. But the, the Luke one gives us uh, a, a real sense of, of who's all involved in this situation. But let me set the stage. So Jesus had just finished probably the most monumental teaching of his ministry. We talk about the Sermon on the Mount, right? This place where Jesus sits and teaches his disciples and all those who are hearing and listening around. And basically what he sets up is, here's how things work, is really what he's teaching. So in how the kingdom or how Jesus' authority or God's authority operates in the world, this is what it looks like. And so there's very practical knowledge of how the Lord is working on all of these things in very specific instances where, where you see God teaching about very different challenges that people are facing and, and different things about how you function as situations come your way. And so he talks about loving your enemies and he talks about how a tree is known by its fruit and how you should build your house on a rock. And so All of these things are things that he's talking about how the kingdom or how the work of the Lord or the the rule and reign of Christ operate in the context of those who are followers of Christ and even Christ himself. And it's not surprising that immediately after the teaching is over, Jesus practically shows us. So it it moves from just a a knowledge component of here's the truth of God's work and how you can anticipate God to work in the world. And then Jesus encounters people and shows us how it works. Now, we get a couple of different instances. Matthew gives us uh, a sense in which there's a a miracle or somebody who is in desperate need. And then Luke kind of has a a different uh, person show up. and, And so anyway, there's this Roman centurion. What we know about Roman centurions is they're a leader of a hundred men. So this is someone who understands hierarchy, leadership, knows his people, leads his people. But he's an outsider to the Jewish culture. He's not a Jew. He's not someone that is necessarily following Jesus and abiding by his teaching. He's part of the occupying government in the midst of the region. So they're moving down to Capernaum, which is a bit south along the, the Sea of Galilee. And he's, he's doing, Jesus is doing this, these teachings and communicating all of these things. And then this Roman centurion kind of moves into the picture. What we get right off the bat is there's just this contrast. Like you would not have anticipated that Jesus would have interacted with the centurion nor would you have expected that the Roman centurion would request anything of Christ. These people are on opposite sides of the tracks. And yet if we hearken back to the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had already told us very clearly, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. 
Right? So Jesus is tangibly living out the truths that he's just taught. And there's some unique aspects of this whole study that I think are, are tremendous. It's one of, the, one, of the, one of my favorite miracles, if I can even say that, as I, as I see some of the details that transpire as we look at the surrounding environment that leads this Roman centurion to request something of Jesus. Let me read it for you as we start in chapter 7, verse 1. After he'd finished all his sayings, and in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued to him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you to do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our, us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Verse 7, therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Tremendous story, not the least of which is the, the details of what ends up taking place. So let me just give you some, some anecdotal stuff, not the least of which is that there's only two times that the Scripture records for us that Jesus is marveled, that he's shocked or surprised by the events that transpired. And it always has to do with faith. This place here where he is marveled at the faith of someone who's an outsider. The other time at Nazareth where he is marveled at the unbelief and the lack of faith of those who were Jews. So if we look at faith and we're thinking about the significance of what faith really is, this becomes a very critical story of what faith looks like and really how it operates according to Christ in the world that he has authority over. So here's what he tells us right at the beginning. Roman centurion had heard about Jesus. It's not as though he had necessarily followed his career. In Capernaum, there was certain rumblings of this rabbi prophet that was going along, and there were things that, that they had heard or he had heard about him with no first-hand knowledge of who he is. And one of the striking things that I think as Jesus walks through the Sermon on the Mount that becomes a part of how he reveals himself to us would, would be under what I would consider the theological understanding of compassion. We're talking numerous throughout the times in the New Testament where Jesus communicates about his compassion. He was moved with compassion. What is compassion? According to Christ, I would say that compassion is your pain... In his heart. Like that, that's a definition 
of compassion, as we're moving to the conversation about faith and the testimony of this Roman centurion, I want to set the parameters of realizing that, that the heart of Christ himself is moved by the reality of the pain that he sees and the knowledge that there's a level of him uh, drawing us into this intimacy. And so if we think about compassion, it's certainly more than justice. It's certainly not pity. It's your pain in his heart. That moves me a bit, especially as I think about the sacrifices of our military men and women, those who are leading our country, this Roman centurion who's under the authority of a government and he's operating based on their decisions that he's making. But what is he asking? It's an intriguing story because he's not the one who's sick. Right? He's not the one that's struggling at all. It's not as though he is coming to Jesus and saying, look, I need you to do something because I am in a really difficult spot. It's as though the compassion of Christ and the compassion of a Roman soldier are kind of highlighted in this text. The text tells us that the centurion had a servant or a slave. So this is someone likely that worked in his household. Someone that was doing things or working alongside of him. And it tells us that he was sick at the point of death. So the servant is suffering in incalculable ways. We're not told what sickness he has. We're not even told how he's suffering. Only that it looks like it's going to cost him his life. But it doesn't tell us that the servant is asking for anything. It doesn't tell us that the servant asked the Roman centurion to ask Jesus for help. This was all motivated by the Roman soldier who deeply cared about this servant. He said he was highly valuable and highly valued by him. I love this thought because what it, what it moves us to realize is that regardless of who's suffering, compassion doesn't measure the value of who's suffering. It just ministers. Compassion doesn't measure it. It ministers. It moves into those spaces where there's a reality of someone that is in our lives in some way, whether just arbitrarily or close to us, where we're looking at suffering and we would say to ourselves with a human heart, that has to be really hard. That hurt, that pain, that fear, that life that's at the point of death moves this Roman soldier to compassion and takes on the reality of his pain to his heart and communicates that it's willing to figure out what can be done. Doesn't seem like there's any other options, but they've heard stories of this wandering rabbi. Maybe, just maybe, he can help. And so Matthew tells us that actually the interchange was between the Roman centurion and Jesus. Luke gives us its indication that there were some other people involved in this. I think this is critical because I think it speaks to the real notion and real false notion often that we take when we come to Christ. Here's what Luke tells us. He said, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent 
to him elders, uh, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him urgently. So here are the Jews, the elders, the leaders of the church that are now asking Jesus on behalf of the Roman centurion, on behalf of the suffering servant who's struggling. But here's how the Jews begin to try and ask Jesus or move him to make the decisions that they want him to make. And I want you to listen to this very, very closely because I think there's similarities often with the motives that we take for prayer that I think Jesus just absolutely dismantles and explodes. Here's what the Jewish leaders say to try and move Jesus to act on the behalf of the Roman centurion on behalf of his servant. He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. This dude has value because he's got some money. And he cares about the nation. He's not necessarily an enemy per se. He's, he's helping us along. And so because of the merits of the centurion, you should act. Let me ask frequently, how often do we ask Jesus for the same things based on our own merits? You ever give Jesus your resume? <laughs> I just give you a heads up. God, I, I know you know all things, but I've been serving you for 16 years. I've told a few people about Jesus. I've loved and prayed for people. I care about your church. You need to do this for me. It's going to benefit you. Right? We get in that mindset with utter frequency that somehow in some way our own merits or the merits of someone else are what move God to act. We feel like that all the time. That somehow in some way based on our goodness or our lack of badness. Right? We do both. I'm not great. But did you see this guy that sits next to me? He's a total dirtbag. So you can do this for me. Right? We compare our own level of intimacy or maturity and think that somehow in some way that's how God moves. Jesus doesn't respond to their request. I mean, doesn't debate their request at all, right? He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, okay, well, because of this, he just, he just goes. Why? Because compassion doesn't measure. It ministers. Now, there's, there's brokenness and plenty of it to go around, whether it's the pride of the elders or their desire to find their own security in the context of Jesus moving and thinking that they have the, the best plan for their life, or whether it's the Roman centurion seeking and desiring God to do things on behalf of a servant or whatever it is, Jesus moves in. And in the process of moving in, we get this incredible declaration of what faith is. There's a sense in which there's a level of, of authority that this Roman soldier understands that seems to be a very unique and very essential part of what faith is. So I would suggest that often we're compelled to seek Jesus based on the merits or based, we're compelled to seek Jesus on behalf of others. See, I think that's a unique part of this story. So you have a Roman centurion who's an outsider and he's desiring Jesus to heal a servant. So part of this story is not just about prayer and about seeking the work of Christ, but it's about seeking the work of Christ on others' behalf. And all of us have done it. I have loved ones 
are sick. We have people that we know in our communities and nation. We, play, we prayed for a, a shake people group this morning who were, I am sure, mothers and fathers and children who were dealing with untold amounts of human suffering. And my guess is that not many of us know a shake person. Probably not one of us have ever met that people group. Now, possibly you have. But does that mean that as we look at the incalculable suffering in all of the human world, that we're not moved with compassion, their pain in our hearts, pleading for Jesus to work in unbelievable ways on their behalf because he knows them, he can work, and he has the power to affect change? I think that's what he's moving us to is the sense in which what we're crying out for is the the work of God to be realized in the people that we know, and even those we don't know, but we look at human suffering, and we say to ourselves, that has to be unbearably hard. We need to ask someone who can actually work in that situation. And Jesus is the only one. And so he, he moves into that situation, and, and here's what happens, right? Luke tells us that other people that came out and, and Jesus went with them in verse 6. And, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. Matthew tells us that there was some interchange between him and, and Jesus. But here's what he says, which is, which is most important. Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I too am a man under authority... With soldiers under me, I say, go, he goes. To another, I say, come, he comes. To the servant, I say, do this, and he does that. So now there's an element of understanding about what faith really is that gives us an indication of what it looks like to trust Jesus. And here here is what I think the Roman soldier gives us as we begin to grow in our understanding of the work of God, is that faith is confidence both in the authority and compassion of Christ. Why does that matter? Because to just think that Jesus has authority and to place our faith solely in the authority of Christ would lend itself to prayers such as, well, you're going to do what you want anyway, so okay. But if we marry that, with the compassion of Christ, our pain in his heart, we get this sense that the work that Jesus is doing in our world through the power of the Holy Spirit is motivated by compassion and love. And so there is a sense in which even as he's working on our behalf and on behalf of those in which we love, we can trust that as he exercises his authority and we're seeking him for these things, he's not motivated as some dictator wielding power. He's motivated by compassion. He's moving them. So if there is a sense in which the eternal reality of someone's heart will be moved towards intimacy with Christ in the midst of suffering and pain, then Jesus is working and asserting his authority so that that suffering and pain makes sense to draw them into eternal reality of who Jesus is. Because that's what matters most. Here's the most intriguing part that I think gets exposed in this. Is it's not just the Roman soldier who is asking for Jesus to work on someone else's behalf, which I think is 
awesome and just a tremendous reality of what it looks like to move with compassion. But I think what's exposed often, specifically in this text, is the issues of the heart. And the greatest heart issue that exists in this text is with the Jewish leaders, not with anyone else. They see Christ as a transactional God who works on a merit system. (laughs) You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. And that's just how things operate. And Jesus intrudes into that false notion and gives us the reality that the authority of God is at work, motivated by compassion, so that the ultimate end is a realization not only of just his authority, but his compassionate love for people. And he draws them to himself. He's, he's marveled at their faith, is what he said. Never before have I seen a, a, a faith such as this, even in the nation of Israel, who had all the law and all the commandments. They didn't understand the authority of Jesus at work, motivated by compassion. Your pain in his heart. How's that frame your own faith? There's a doctor uh, years ago who used to work uh, in the inner city of Washington, D.C., And in the process of working in Washington, D.C. with some of the most uh, destitute and difficult people, realizing that the amount of assistance that he was able to do was limited. He'd help a few people, but the suffering was just unmitigated. More and more, he felt impossible to be able to move in any direction. And so here's how he describes uh, his situation. Perhaps the deepest pain involved in living among the poor is the juxtaposition of my own limitations and the woundedness of theirs. There are so many battered people all over the place. I sometimes wonder what the Good Samaritan would have done on the road to Jericho had it been littered with hundreds of men beaten by robbers. One part of me wants to respond to every need I can, but another part of me is unwilling, he says, perhaps unable. Numbness and cynicism, I suspect, are more often the products of frustrated compassion than of evil intentions. I think that there's a part of us realizing in the midst of these things that the Roman soldier gives us a window into that. He was unable to help the suffering of someone he loved. Inept, unable, no more resources, even maybe people who had tried to help but couldn't. And he heard about, he just heard about Jesus. And amidst all of the social norms of the day and it's all of the compromises and all of the challenges, he was willing to take a risk on Christ. Maybe, just maybe, he would work. And he understand, whatever he understood about Jesus, he understood about his authority. He could say it and it would be done. If the Christ we serve and the Christ that loves us is motivated by compassion, how much does that move us to trust in his authority and work in our lives as we're pleading on behalf of those who are suffering, whether it's ourselves or whether it's someone else? Let me just bring this home as best I can. I know many of you have probably looked on the CDC website about all of the different things that are going on, but they recently just came out with a study of 18 to 24-year-olds greatest effect of COVID over this last year plus. And they're starting to realize that the mental health toll has been 
unimaginable and more than they could even consider. 63%, 30 days before they did that survey and answered the questions, have struggled with some levels of anxiety and depression. 30% have been on the verge of taking their own life. That the thought of the younger generation struggling, and many of us are struggling in that way as well, and we don't fit that category, but the incalculable toll of isolation and depression and anxiety and fear has captured a generation. And we're seeing it bear itself out in so many ways. We see things on the news. We hear about volatility on the streets. What is your or my response? Is it just to move towards criticism of those in leadership? We should be doing something different. We should be taking other things away. Or, knowing what we know of Christ and Him motivated by compassion, our pain and His heart, is is prayer not the weapon? Is, Is prayer not the reality that a church on its knees seeking for the work of God to be done... Jesus expressing his authority based on compassion in in all of the generations. As we see pain, we move towards it, not away from it. Jesus doesn't avert his eyes from suffering. He draws himself into it with intimacy in his presence. As token as it might sound, Jesus is the answer. There's nothing else that we can attend to, no political infrastructure or changing our culture in some certain way to make sure that all of the pain goes away. Pain makes no sense outside of Jesus. It's just something you go through or get through. But when it's redeemed and restored by the authority and compassion of Christ, it makes all the sense. Because it leads us to a place of knowledge and intimacy that God is at work, worthy to be trusted. If he say go, it goes. If he say come, it comes. Whatever he says and however he operates, he has authority and he's drawing you and me to himself. One for the church. To see the pain and suffering in the world and not avert our eyes or to keep ourselves comfortable in our own small little bubble. We move in. Not because we have any answers or like that doctor said, I just feel numb because it's just too big. Yes, you cannot affect all of the wounding and all of the sin and all of the struggles that you see on a daily basis. But the Savior you say you love can every time. And so rather than disqualify ourselves or limit our interactions, we open the doors of the church and we say we're a home for the hurting. We say we want to be a people that discover life in the power of God's grace and that we share that life-changing grace with others. Why? Because Jesus cares about people. And so much so he's moved by compassion. Your pain, their pain in his heart and draws them to a place of intimacy. He affects heart change. So I would pray that a few things would happen this morning. We would look at this story and realize that as we pray on behalf of other people that we know are suffering. Don't grow weary, Galatians tells us, of doing good. For in such season, you will reap a harvest. That, that at the time that is most critical for us as a body, when we think about even just a small subset of people, 18 to 24-year-olds, are navigating a world that is 
not only foreign to us, but crushing and taking some of the best things of life away. Joy is being robbed on a daily basis. And you might not be able to even know that, that age group or involved in there. I would recommend that you do. But the least that we could do as a body is to say our arms are open and our knees are bent. We are praying. Secondarily, there are people in your life right now who you've grown weary of praying for. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Like, things haven't changed, right? Their vehemence, their struggle, their suffering, their challenge, things just seem to be getting worse. And yet in the process of those things, the scripture tells us this morning that this servant never, that we know of never made a request, wasn't asking for help, but it gives us his condition. He was at the point of death. There wasn't much hope. Till Jesus shows up. There wasn't much hope. Till Jesus shows up. Have that person in your mind and think about that with me. There wasn't much hope. Till Jesus showed up. So we pray. Keep our hearts open. We realize that Jesus isn't done until he's done. And we continue to pursue and pray and testify that this is the God we serve. All compassion and all authority. Man, that is where I'm going to stake my life. Let's pray. 